My Black Counts is a podcast series produced by the Center for Community Engagement, Environmental Justice, and Health, with assistance from WYPR. So for this segment, we're joined by a writer and president of the Baltimore Transit Equity Coalition and also transportation justice advocate, Samuel Jordan. Welcome to My Block Counts, Samuel. It's good to see you. Thank you so much. Good to be here and have this discussion with you. I think uh, we need it joined by thousands and millions in this country. Yes, sir. So first question, can you tell us a little bit more about the Baltimore Transit Equity Coalition, its history, the importance of transportation equity in the community, specifically in Baltimore, where you live and reside? The Baltimore Transit Equity Coalition was founded within hours of the cancellation of the Red Line Light Rail Project by former Governor Larry Hogan. And we understood that after having uh, spent nine years of my life already in planning and preparing and outreach work for the Red Line Project, it was absolutely certain what Larry Hogan's efforts amounted to, what they were uh, seeking to in fact, impose upon Baltimore. That is, when Larry Hogan canceled the red line, he was demonstrating his allegiance to Baltimore segregationist history. Baltimore is the queen city of redlining that you were referring to earlier, the Federal Home Loan uh, Organization and Corporation. In 1910, Baltimore was the first city in the nation to enforce racially restrictive covenants in home ownership, loans, and property. Uh, Baltimore and this idea of redlining means that decisions are made about property and individuals based on their location, not on meaningful qualifications like, can you actually afford this house? You would think that would be one of the most important considerations. Instead, redlining means we make a decision about your loan on the basis of your race and your location. Well, that's a legacy of control of the enslavement period. It's a modern iteration of control of the mobility of people of color. So we can say without any real refutation that public transportation is racially conflicted wherever people of color live. It also means that the opportunities available to people of color in communities that were formerly redlined, but are today have a sort of a modern redlining, you can't get a loan and you can't with the same uh, qualifications and even employment histories of others. But what it does is it brings up to date that we still are engaged in the control of people of color, of populations of color. Larry Hogan did this and he did it in a way that indicated he was also a major actor in the autocentric culture. Weaponizing the autocentric culture against people of color is one of the roles that government plays. And I think I want to mention this in this context in that structural racism always depends upon a complicit governmental participation. There is no such thing as structural racism without an element of government action and approval. So Hogan's cancellation of the red line not only condemned 
Baltimore to an economic abyss. It also destroyed the improvements that we were making and planning for improvements in transit equity, particularly access, commute times, the access to jobs, healthcare, employment services, to uh, education, all these suffer when there's no real service by reliable transportation. And our work with the red line, we found that not only did Larry Hogan cancel it to improve his standing in the racial panoply, that is, he was giving us his George Wallace imitation by showing that we can do this and hold steady the relationship that we have, the toxic relationship that we have between the races and among the races. So we have an effort by the city, by the government, and particularly in, in uh, Larry Hogan's decision that what is needed in Baltimore is a punitive, aggressive reinforcement of the status quo. And as you would imagine and can understand that the status quo for people of color is always punitive. What Larry Hogan also did was to explain it by saying that it was a uh, boondoggle and that's why it should not be completed. Well, boondoggle isn't exactly English. It's Koch brothers talk for wasteful expense. It doesn't require independently verifiable data. There is no such report, analysis or study that corroborates that claim. So we are interested in making certain that we can share, in fact, get Baltimore region to adopt a few values with respect to transit equity. For example, we don't wanna hear anything about the red line from anybody if it's not independently verifiable. If that data is not independently verifiable, put it right back where it came from, okay? That's one. The other is where you find structural racism, you've got to make structural change. What we have in Baltimore and in the state of Maryland, M.MTA has what we call a commandist model. That is, there is no opportunity for the members and leaders of the communities most directly affected, or even the leaders of the jurisdictions forming the Baltimore region to have any significant or meaningful participation in public transportation policymaking. So we start with that. It's a control and legacy instrument of the period of enslavement. And it continues to be a control mechanism. So with public transportation, you can go to some towns where there is no bus service on the weekend. Keeps the black folks from coming downtown on the weekend and scaring away the, uh, the real Americans and the tourists. Or you have a system where the uh, public transit system shuts down at 10 o'clock. In some places at eight o'clock. You know, I grew up in uh, Ward 7 in Washington, D.C., Sukobi, and I am fully aware of the great disparities in transit service and access. But we want to do more here in Baltimore in terms of where does this take us? What do we have to do? One is we need and we want to identify the communities that have been most directly impacted by decisions like Hogan's. These decisions that can only uh, exacerbate transit equity and access, commute times, even economic development that follows rail. In fact, the industry mantra, as you know, is development follows rail, buses follow development. 
But what does it mean in actual practice? It means we give buses to the black folks and we give rail to the white folks. Okay, so our advocacy for the red line is to counter the history of the pattern of access to equitable transit. And it means also that when the governor Moore says he intends to complete the red line light rail project, we want to let him know that it takes a lot more than saying, I want to do it because we're going to work with them. But we have to prepare the communities along the red line corridor for what a completion of the red line light rail project can mean. This is where we begin to talk a bit more about environmental justice, about transit equity, and about that mix with uh, toxic relationship among the races fostered and cultivated by the government. Let me jump in here. So you talked about government being complicit to creating, you know, the system of transportation equity and the negative impacts of the cancellation of red line. I talked earlier about how zoning gets weaponized, but you're talking about how transportation gets weaponized against certain communities. Absolutely. And even when you when you think about people driving their cars through neighborhoods, right? Weaponized their cars, they're dumping pollution, right? So can you dig in a little bit more about the negative impacts of this cancellation of the red line and then follow up, talk about what you're doing with the new governor and what this new act means to address this historic problem? Well, okay, good enough. The experience that we have, of course, when we talk about uh, weaponizing the uh, transit equity, for example, or the lack of access to transit, what it means is major access to employment is unreliable. And when access to employment is unreliable, those jobs that can be reached are always featured by high turnover and low wages. High turnover, low wages, and precarious employment. In fact, in Baltimore region, two out of three jobs cannot be reached within 90 minutes by public transportation, but the rule in the area and in the region is three times 15 minutes late, you lose your job. So when an unreliable transit system is the only transit option available to a major proportion of the workforce, we then have an underperforming economy. And it's also a note that I want to make sure it's clear. When there's an underperforming transportation system that is driven by inequity, we always have an underperforming economy. In fact, if you put it one way that uh, we're seeing now with a bit of concern about what happens with the uh, former president, white supremacy has only three gifts, violence, the threat of violence, and underdevelopment for everyone. So the project that we're undertaking, the Baltimore Transit Equity Coalition seeks the completion of the Red Line Light Rail project, but also the creation of a Baltimore Regional Transportation Authority. If the government is uh, complicit, then we want to make structural change in the way the government functions and governs transit options, transit services, transit programs. So we also want to make sure that it's clear that racism is the chief suppressor of investment in public transportation. When Governor Hogan canceled the red line, he made that decision after he toured the uprising zone following the murder of Freddie Gray. He made four decisions. First, I promise you I will build a new $30 million prison for youth. And everybody knows that the uprising was not a demand for a new prison. His second decision was to take $11 million out of the education bill. And he still doesn't support the Kerwin Legislative Initiative. So we have 
the most incarcerated people in the history of the earth, and now we don't need books and teachers. His third decision was to cancel the red line light rail project. In doing so, he also returned a $900 million grant, New Start's grant from the federal government. This was uh, to burnish and display his Republican chops. The playbook in the Republican Party at that time, when we talk about politics, was don't do anything that makes President Obama look good. You know, at that time, he was calling himself Chris Christie's twin. Well, he twinned with Chris Christie when he canceled the red line because Chris Christie had done the same thing to a Hudson Tunnel grant project. It needed about $6 billion to repair, you know, the tiles falling from the ceiling of that tunnel. And he refused to accept the money. He returned over $1.2, $1.4 billion in monies that were to be used for repair of that tunnel. At any given moment, 10% of the entire gross national uh, product of the United States passes through that tunnel. Now he wants to uh, build it and repair it, and it's $4 billion more expensive. But that was the playbook. And what we have now is that if Governor Moore is to complete the Red Line Light Rail project, we have to take into consideration the use of the Red Line as a leveler to level the playing field, to improve significantly transit equity, not only along the corridor, but the red line itself, 14.2 miles, 19 stations, 54,000 passengers a day, but in 45 minutes, when the rest of the transit system, including buses and BRT, is what we call rationalized, then those routes will go to transit hubs and speed people along on their commutes. That is a vision that we are sharing with the governor. We've got his attention, but we wanna make sure that we talk in detail with him and his new secretary of transportation, who happens to be Paul Whitefield. Whitefield was the general manager of WMATA and WMATA has introduced now a whole new program in Washington, DC that will uh, make fares a lot less expensive and some fare routes, uh, zero fares, but nevertheless, the point is that WMATA and its experience also provides a lesson in some shape for Baltimore. One, in making the structural change, we want to supplant the MDOT MTA commanders model and in fact introduce and create a Baltimore Regional Transportation Authority that would for the first time give the residents and leaders of the communities most directly affected a voice in transportation policy making. It would also give the jurisdictions in the Baltimore region for the very first time a hand and a voice in transit policy making. When we speak about the issues of environmental justice, when they intersect with transit equity and transit justice, we are speaking of a joint social equity movement, social justice movement. And what we have found is that there are several things that we should do first, and that is get the data, identify the problem, give it its dimensions. BTEC, and I'm a co-author of a study with Dr. Megan Latchow at Johns Hopkins uh, Bloomberg School of Public Health called Transit Equity and Environmental Health in Baltimore City. It was published in 2021. And the idea was to use independently verifiable data to make the case for investments in those frontline, fence line, overly burdened, disadvantaged communities that have also endured the bulk of the pollutants generated by the transportation sector 
and by other source points in Baltimore. We're talking about incinerators and bad water. But nevertheless, with respect to the transportation sector, we've been able to identify those communities most in need of investments where we have tracked pollution, impacts on health, transit equity, and what we call social vulnerability factors. But what we have been able to share with leadership in the region is a mapping project that shows where we've demonstrated there are at least six clusters of communities in Baltimore, combined population of over 200,000 people who have limited access to transit, but a great deal of exposure to pollution. And the health impacts are also without real attention and have not been addressed. So we have a body of data that now we can say to policymakers, this is where we need to conduct a process that engages the community in doing several things. It's a four-step process. But the point is we have the data and now we need to make sure that the money gets to the problem. First is to assess the problem, identify the uh, communities. We've done that with the mapping, now assess the problem with the experience of those members of the community. What has happened here? What about uh, asthma, COPD, even low birth weight? Well, there are records that show what those, and we have tracked those, what are the deficiencies in healthcare that also are responsive and connected, intersecting with pollution from any source point, but particularly that generated by the transportation sector. Following that assessment, with the community's engagement, we want to design an intervention or interventions with the community's participation. What should work here? Won't be one shoe fits all. But the point that we're getting at is when we have that design of an intervention, we put a price tag on it and go look for the money to implement it so that we have a sustainable implementation of an intervention for the foreseeable future. Now that process is what we want to uh, impress upon Governor Moore, that we have the data, we have the opportunity now to demonstrate whether or not the completion of the red line can be a factor in the fight against uh, environmental destruction and climate change, or whether or not the completion of the red line introduces additional toxic factors, additional factors that disenfranchise or factors that reduce the access of communities to health, to education, and to employment. Now, at this point, we are saying to the governor, and we have found out that the best way to complete the Red Line Light Rail project is to reevaluate the Red Line's final environmental impact study and see what has changed over the years since uh, its cancellation. We have eight years. It's been canceled. It was shovel-ready when Hogan canceled it. And we find that some changes may have occurred. We identify them and make the modifications as required. That should lead to approval and what's called a record of decision and the eligibility for the project to receive new federal funds. So these, these steps that you're mentioning, these are all part of the Transportation Equity Act of 2023 that you're no, outlining? These, these steps are part of our strategy that we developed from the study we did with Hopkins. That study was a mapping study. Where are the pollutants? What pollutants? You know, we're particularly concerned about 
PM 2.9. These are nanoparticles in many communities, particularly those that are along bus lines, truck lines. Well, we've been breathing them for decades. We have complete communities that deliver lungs damaged by particulate pollutants like PM 2.95. And what happens is COVID, as you know, is a lung disease. Particularly matter, it increases your risk of um, infection from COVID-19. So for the audience, can you talk about the Transportation Equity Act of 2023? Yes. Yeah, and talk about the key provisions and, and benefits of this new act for the audience. Yes, sir, go ahead. Yes, the Transportation Equity Act was signed into law on April 8th by Governor Moore. It was a tremendous advance. In fact, we call it a victory for uh, the Baltimore Transit Equity Coalition and our allies, because what it does is provide enforcement of the protections in Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act that have not been provided by the states. In fact, Maryland will be the only state in the union that has taken this step. Why? Because in the 1964 Civil Rights Act, you know, uh, then President Lyndon Johnson, probably one of the most feared and accomplished uh, arm twisters in the history of the Congress, made a deal with the states. They support the 1964 Civil Rights Act, and he'll make certain provisions of Title VI subject only to self-policing by the states. So what we have in Maryland now with the Transportation Equity Act is our workaround that self-policing provision in Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Why and how? That is, when a policy is made, introduced, even proposed by the Transit Administration, it must be assessed as to what we are calling prior transit equity analysis. And if the burdens and harms of that policy are disparately distributed, it cannot be implemented. That is the principal function of the bill. Now, it can be strengthened. It isn't perfect. There was some negotiations going on. But what is most important is that policies of the transportation sector, the agency, whoever that might be, could be the uh, MTA, could be directly from Whitefell in the Department of Transportation, but they must pass this test. And what that also does is it generates a series of downstream responses, downstream benefits. When we can halt the implementation of a transportation plan, for example, a budget cut, a budget cut that weighs more heavily on routes that serve Black communities, okay? When we can halt that by this Transportation Equity Act, what we've also done is open the door to a review and reassessment of transit routes, transit practices, transit services that have not been analyzed in 50, 40, 60 years or more, if ever. They're of improving the transit system uh, by a long shot for the foreseeable future. So the Transit Equity Act is historic. It is the first uh, effort to our knowledge in the nation that enforces the Title VI protections at the state level. Governor Moore is aware of that provision and how we feel it's most important. In fact, if he wants to be the uh, Title VI protection governor, he can. We want him to do that. We want him to share what we've accomplished here in Maryland with his signature, share that with other states. We can protect the equitable access. We can protect 
for example, even with environmental justice issues. For example, MTA wants to electrify the fleet. But if the electrification of the fleet is predominantly for those buses on routes that serve predominantly white communities, Transportation Equity Act will not permit that kind of distribution of the benefits of zero emission vehicles. And let me interject there. So electrification, y'all, it could be a positive public health impact because you have less pollution, right? You have, you know, no pollution, uh, no emissions, no particular matter, no, you know, combustion byproducts, no black carbon. That's like you think about buses, and that's diesel particulates, no nitrogen dioxide, no sulfur dioxide. But Samuel just said there's a distributional justice part. If you have buses that are only going to neighborhoods of primarily white residents get electrified and buses that are still burning dirty diesel and dumping dirty diesel toxicants in communities of color, it ain't going to fly. Go ahead, Samuel. And that kind of uh, research is required by this act. In fact, what we want to demonstrate when we speak to uh, the Biden administration about Title VI, there is a threshold that the agencies set themselves when they're making major service policy changes. For example, in Baltimore, in Maryland, that threshold is 25%. What that means is if the policy change will affect 25% change in budget, 25% change in ridership even, 25% change in uh, route uh, accessibility even, that 25% set by the agency triggers the requirement for a prior transit equity analysis. However, what the agencies will do, as in Maryland, is set the change at 20% beneath the threshold, 25%. At 20%, no prior equity analysis is required. And that's how states have, since 1964, self-policed by setting the threshold for major service changes higher than the change they make. So as a result, that proposal that the M.MTA made in September 2020 would have imposed 20% draconian cuts on the core bus service in Baltimore with this 83% Black ridership. No other mode, airport, seaport, roads and highways, got similar cuts. In fact, the MARC commuter system was only to receive four to 8% temporary cuts. And that's the MARC service with 70% white ridership, temporary cuts, four to 8%. With the core bus service at 83% black ridership, permanent cuts. This is sort of the application of the uh, Naomi Klein shock doctrine to public transportation. Take advantage of the pandemic. Take advantage of natural disaster and exploit even more those least able and capable of defending themselves in the political arena. Think about that. Take advantage of pandemic, take advantage of disaster, the further marginalize, further disempower, further erase folks who don't have power, folks who do have power, but who may not be able to access that power. Let me correct myself. Everybody has power. And we're about my block council, making sure we help people understand the power that they have and build that power. Now, my last question to you, Samuel, is really to, for others out there who are interested in getting into this space, right? What advice do you have for them, for those who want to get involved in transportation justice advocacy? Those folks who are seeking to make a positive impact on their communities, 
through transportation initiatives. What advice do you have for our audience? We have to know what are the conditions under which transit is actually employed, deployed, how the system actually serves those who are in need of transit and don't have access to cars. What is the distribution of transportation services? What are published and what are real commute times, for example? So there is a data collection. And we insist upon that because when the governor came to office after he was inaugurated, there were voices in the uh, General Assembly saying that the red line can't be completed, that too much development had occurred since Hogan's cancellation. Our question to them was, can you prove it? Where's the documentation for that? If there's no independently verifiable data, don't bring that to the table. Yes, sir. So that's the first thing. Get to know what the conditions are. Speak with riders, speak with households that don't have access to cars, but also take a look at the management of white flight. White flight is a weaponization of the autocentric culture against people of color. Is the city still supporting the de-urbanization of the city itself, the loss of population. Okay, so we wanna first take a look at what is the data on the ground. Then we talk about what kind of transit improvements need to be made. Is it simply reliability and frequency? And that's serious. Is it uh, reduced commute times? What it usually boils down to is the lack of investments in transportation. And cities don't prioritize investments in public transportation if there is no real political authority among the communities that are in fact in need of improved public transportation. But it isn't a loss for us. We don't see that as a defeat because we know that it is possible, particularly now with the new governor, when we demark the Hogan era as distinguished from the Moore era, was saying, listen to the folks who are most directly impacted. And that message is a message that says, Governor, we know that you see this problem and we have made it absolutely clear. There is no way possible that your administration or others even in the city or in the state, where we have an overwhelming blue majority in the state, should be able to divert investments, divert attention, and divert the idea of developing and designing interventions for the long term. So we have his ear. And I think what we would also say to those who are interested in this issue is the intersectionalities of public transportation with health, with uh, employment, with uh, environment, climate change response, they too are just as important to maintain in terms of a current development of expertise and community knowledge as it is with the issues of transit equity. As I said earlier, a public transit equity campaign, public transit equity movement is also an environmental justice movement. Sir, Public transit is a key instrument in the fight against climate change. Not only does it mean uh, reduced pollutants, but it also means improved environmental conditions. It can mean improved public health. So they go hand in hand. And in That's fact, right. uh, the industry that favors the uh, autocentric culture, you know, the fossil fuel industry, you know, if they win, now let's just look at it from this point. 
if there is a victory, let's say uh, we don't know what's going to happen in 2024, but if there's a victory, what it means that every drink, every swallow of water you take today will be dirtier than the one you took before. Every drink of water will be dirtier than the one you took before. Those are the wages of the domination of the fossil fuel industry. Now, and every breath of air too, right, will be yes. dirtier than the one you took before. Yes, sir, go but ahead. What we're seeing also is that renewable energies have now uh, become a lot less expensive, for example, solar, than uh, conventionally produced electricity. So we're telling the government, not only do we want to see the completion of the red line light rail project, but we want it to be solar rail. Oh, there love is, it. We want the red line light rail project to be powered by solar power. And that's now possible. In fact, uh, there is a system that we've been watching around the nation. In fact, I'm going to travel a little bit more than I have this past uh, few weeks. But uh, Santiago de Chile, 2.2 million riders a day. It's a public transit system. It's solar powered. And its solar power comes from the Atacambra Desert. I'm not sure if those of you who know the geography, but Santa, Santiago de Chile is in the north, the Atacambra Desert in the south, 400 kilometers away. Okay. In other words, it can be done if we intend to do it, but because it is progressively inexpensive each year, it's a gift that keeps on giving. So we can say to the governor that not only are we asking that it be solarized, but it's going to become less expensive. Yeah, I hear what he just said. He said solarize the red line. Less cars, less people commuting, less cars on the road, meaning you have less PM, less greenhouse gas emissions to drive climate forcing gases, right? CO2, less urban heat on effect. You have cleaner air quality. You have fewer people who are stressed out, sedentary in their cars. So this major public health benefits. But solarize, he just said, it's going to be more cost-effective over time. That's a powerful statement. And that's a great way to end this segment. So I want to thank Samuel for the depth of information about the red line and about this new Equity Act. And about, again, solarizing, y'all. Y'all have heard it before, solarizing public transit, solar rods and rail, that's progressive, that's futuristic, make the future today. And think about again, how transportation justice is connected to environmental justice, it's connected to social justice, it's connected to racial justice, it's connected to economic justice. And this just shows you how where you live, where you work, where you play, where you pray. When we think about environmental justice, and how your neighborhood counts. And again, this is My Block Counts, an environmental justice podcast dedicated to helping people know so they can grow and help things flow in their communities. Thank you once again for joining us. And thank you, audience. Thanks, Samuel Jordan, for that great information about the Red Line Project, about his organization, BTEC, about the new act, and about what this new governor in Maryland is going to do to push for transportation justice throughout the state. We thank you for your time. We thank you for your hard work. See you next time. Dr. Wilson out. You've been listening to My Block Counts. My Block Counts is sponsored by the Center for Community Engagement, Environmental Justice, and Health at the University of Maryland. Executive producer and host, Dr. Sakobi Wilson, with production assistance from Ariel Wharton. Technical producer, Kelly Avent. 
Additional information about My Black Counts can be found at CEEJH.center or WYPR.org. New episodes of My Black Counts are released each month. Please share and subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review.